Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, zero-day exploits are striking over 100 companies right now. If you're copying links to bash scripts off the internet, you probably shouldn't be root. And the day Google automated itself off the internet. Plus, a great big batch of your questions, our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 266 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on May 12th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hello. Hello, Hello Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. I'm feeling good. 266, Alan. I'm feeling good yeah, about that. That's a lot of episodes. And uh, I think by this point, it'd be totally fair if you just wanted to uh, phone it in and not have a big show. And I think people would understand after 266 weeks. But as a matter of point, you're like double down. We well, have a huge show. Like six pages I, of show I got docs. up early this morning. And, <laughs> and this is what we get. Yeah, <laughs> That's what happens when Alan doesn't sleep. And I got up super early this morning, too. Ugh, but we won't bemoan about that. Uh, we should probably start with the, this zero-day exploit against Microsoft point-of-sale systems. I'm assuming systems powered by Microsoft software in some capacity. So this this zero-day affects all versions of Windows. It just happens that this particular set of bad guys uses it against point-of-sale systems. Aha. All right. So tell me about it. Yeah. So uh, FireEye reports that more than 100 North American companies were attacked by crooks exploiting a Windows zero-day vulnerability. The attack started in early March and involved a zero-day vulnerability, CVE 2016-0167, uh, which was reported and partially fixed as part of April's Patch Tuesday. Uh, and then the zero-day was found by the researchers of FireEye. And then they ex disclosed the details uh, just this week. Uh, and I think Microsoft actually had a follow-up patch to improve their patch to it uh, on this Tuesday as well. Now, hmm, interesting, too, because I just read a story that Wendy's got hacked, and I wonder if... <laughs> yep, it's probably that. Uh-huh. That's cool. That's cool. I, I yeah. sometimes go to Wendy's and get a burger. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, FireEye, so huh? Tell me about it. Is, uh, about the exploit, it's, or the flaw, uh, the kernel mode driver in Windows uh, Vista SP2, Server 2008 SP2, and R2 SP1, Windows 7 SP1, Windows 8.1, Windows Server 2012 Gold and R2, and Windows RT 8.1, and Windows 10 Gold, and Windows 10 uh, 15.11. <laughs> so every supported version of Windows, probably all the other ones too, but they're not supported, so they don't wow. talk about them, uh, allows local users to gain privileges via a crafted application, aka the Win32K uh, elevation of privilege vulnerability. Uh, FireEye said that the flaw is a local privilege escalation uh, in the Win32K Windows graphics subsystem. Mm. Attackers are able to exploit the flaw once they are able to remotely execute code on the targeted PC. Uh, Microsoft patched the vulnerability on April 12th and released a subsequent update to it this week. Um, in March of 
2016, a financially motivated threat actor, <laughs> somebody out to steal money or credit card. AKA uh, just about anybody that has the, no- the knowledge and the skills. Right, but in particular, what they mean by this is that they were after yeah, I know, money, I know, yeah. not, you know, they weren't a state right. actor or they right. weren't just causing problems. Right. It wasn't Putin genius. ordering his secret uh, hacker spies. It was somebody that just right. wants some or cash. Chinese, it, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. I follow. I just thought it was a funny way to put it. You know, it wasn't just scripties either. It was people out to make money. Yep. But, uh, they started a several tailored spearfishing campaigns, primarily targeting the retail, restaurant, and hospitality industries. So they're after stores, restaurants, and hotels, and things of that nature. Uh, the emails contained a variation of a Microsoft Word document with embedded macros that, when enabled, downloaded and executed a malicious downloader that we refer to as Punch Buggy. Uh, I don't know where they get the Punch names. Buggy? Is that what you said? Yep, Punch okay, Buggy. Okay, all right, I'll take it. Uh, Punch Buggy is a dynamically linked library, or DLL, uh, downloader existing for both 32-bit and 64-bit versions that can obtain uh, additional code via HTTPS, uh, so they're always secure when they download the stronger virus. Mm, good, good. I'm glad this to hear This downloader uh, was used by the threat actor to interact with the compromised systems and move laterally across the victim's environment. So you get on one person's machine uh, by spearfishing them, and then they get a, that installs a downloader, which then can download your stronger malware sure. that takes over the machine, and then you can island hop from there. Yep. Um, I think the main reason they use HTTPS is so that uh, network intrusion detection type stuff doesn't see the malware go by in the network because it's hmm. encrypted, right? Yeah, interesting. So, you, in, in other words, network monitoring equipment would say, "Oh, this is on four four three. It's something we can't really inspect, anyways. It's probably encrypted. Just ignore it." Even and so. Do you Whereas think if it wasn't, act- they would probably virus scan the files. As they yeah, and, and like, do you hey. think otherwise it might actively be doing packet inspection and yeah, try to block it, uh, identify the traffic, ma- pattern match it with something, and yeah, that's it's, why isn't that more common, Alan? Uh, I think it'll become more common. Uh, yeah. Luckily, the security industry is ahead of us on this one. Uh, I know the the people that make the Fudu. Remember the SSH yes. yeah. They make one called the Lynx uh, that will decrypt the traffic. And then it doesn't actually do the analysis itself, but it can then shunt it to your existing appliances so, that do it for not encrypted traffic. So just to make sure I'm following the people that aren't familiar. Fudu was a box you could put at the perimeter of your network that would essentially be a go-between for SSHing into machines behind the network. And VNC and VPN desktop and, right. and VPN and SQL. And, and so what's the difference with the new one? So the Lynx one is uh, intercepting SSL. Oh, oh. So all your inbound and outbound SSL, it, or all the outbound SSL... You know, you do the thing where you install the certificate on their client machines and it does right. the man in the middle. Right. Uh, the big thing that makes it better than most other appliances is that it um, it has, when you install the certificate onto the client machines, mm-hmm. the appliance actually has two certificates. One it uses to sign valid certificates. Okay. Uh, but if you, you know, sometimes you go to a website and it's got like a self-signed certificate when somebody has their own server because before Let's Encrypt, it was a free way to do it. Uh, most appliances would then sign that with their good certificate that your client trusts, and then your machine doesn't, you know, as the end user, you don't find out that that's actually not a trusted site. Whereas with the Fudu, it will sign with its not its second not trusted certificate when the certificate's not valid, hmm. uh, so that it actually works properly. That's the nice. other one it does is it keeps the original expiration date and some of the other settings oh. like that. So an expired certificate will still show up as being expired, whereas a lot of these appliances do a bad job and you know the certificate's valid today or something right like they just phone it in <laughs> anyway that's so a pretty is, neat little thing 
yeah, there, so there are ways to decrypt the traffic uh, to be able to scan the files as they go back and forth. But, you know, a lot of networks don't have those yet or aren't, you know, aren't doing any inspection or only inspecting unencrypted traffic. And so by encrypting it, uh, it makes it harder to detect. Yeah, that's clever. And mm-hmm. probably going to, like you said, happen a lot more. Yeah. Uh, in some victim environments, the threat actors exploited a previously unknown elevation of privilege uh, vulnerability in Microsoft Windows to selectively gain the system privilege on a limited number of compromised machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actor was uh, has conducted operations on a large scale and at a rapid pace, displaying a level of operational awareness and the ability to adapt their operations on the fly. Uh, these abilities combined with the targeted use of the elevation of privilege exploit and the reconnaissance required to individually tailor spear phishing messages for their victims uh, spe- uh, potentially speaks to the threat actor's operational maturity and sophistication. So, you know, it wasn't your typical really badly worded phishing message. They specifically targeted people with uh, a thing that would much higher chance that they would open. You know, so you you said the from address to somebody that person might actually expect to get a Microsoft Word document from. Do you think this is so? Do you think this is indicative of uh, because of the value of the target that maybe organized crime is getting involved? Oh, that's entirely possible. Yeah, but whoever's doing it, they've probably been at it a while and learned uh, right, from yeah. failures and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, uh, security experts say as many U.S. companies snuff out point-of-sales malware by deploying chip and pin bank card technology, attackers are rushing to exploit the existing magnetic stripe card systems that are still vulnerable with malware before they all go away. Uh, FireEye, for example, reported that last month that there was a group of hackers that go by the name Bears Incorporated. Adorable. Uh, are behind the latest barrage of attacks with a custom-built point-of-sale malware called uh, Treasure Hunt. This latest zero-day vulnerability follows the same trend. Now, I would argue that chip and pin, you know, switching your, your point-of-sales terminal to chip and pin doesn't make it not vulnerable to malware. Uh, but yes, you know, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not swiping the magnetic stripe, then you're not getting the data you need to uh, clone the card onto like a, a gift card or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. Um, so there definitely are advantages going to chip and pin. I just don't want people to think that by switching to chip and pin, they don't have to worry about point-of-sales malware anymore. You know, you still want to, you know, ideally the point of sales system shouldn't be connected to the machines you open email on. Oh, man. In any way, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Or the ones that your HVAC uh, control systems are connected to, et cetera, et yep. cetera. <laughs> so. uh, you know, because, uh, yeah, exactly. If it's in the system's memory and you have malware on the system reading the RAM, <laughs> does, yeah. You know, just as a, just as a total aside, um, following the whole chip and pin roll out here in the States, I shop at where I live. It's predominantly all non-chain. It's all my mom and pop owned, and um, I can't think of any of them yet that have chip and pin. None of them. Um, a couple of the big chain stores I've shopped at, you have to put your card in, but it was new enough that within the last month or two, like I had to be told how to do it. I had to be told I like, put my card in there, and then it like it sucks in the card into the machine and reads the chip, which it's seems we we don't. Yeah, no, that, here, here you just jam it in, and it, no, it's motorized and, and mechanical. And that seems no. like that's faulty and going to have to cause. Yeah, yeah. Uh, None and, of the machines here do that. And then it sticks it back out, and then I do the rest of my transaction. But at all of the See, independent you, shops, you you stick the thing in. If is, is this the right amount? Okay, enter your pin number. Okay, and zap. And yeah, that's what, that seems way better. Remove card and you go. <laughs> I yeah I, <clears throat> I I don't I don't know what to make of this. 
Uh, to me, I legitimately see more Apple Pay and Android Pay being adopted than I do chip and pin so far. So Apple Pay started rolling out like a year this ago? week in Canada. Oh, 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 wow. And only certain banks support it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting how the it seems like the independent shops for some reason like maybe the I don't know what the, if the rules don't apply to them the same way or what, but um, they don't seem to be replacing their their systems where I shop. Right. Um, yeah, I can depend on a bunch of things. Um, well, that was I think the thing I found the weirdest about visiting the states here. If you're at a restaurant and you want to pay with your card, they have uh-huh. a little wireless terminal they bring over. And they type in how much it is, and they hand it to you, and you put in your card, and type in your PIN, and set the tip. Uh, and then you hand it back. You take out your card and hand it back to them, and it prints the receipt or whatever. Uh, and then in the States, it's like, well, it's come up to the counter, and, or, or here, I'll take your credit card and disappear for a couple of That minutes. is like, a very what? common thing, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> the other thing I'm seeing a lot of in these independent shops is just using uh, what is it? It's not Stripe, but what's the uh, what's the little square? Square, square. square. Yeah. A lot of them are using uh, a tablet and square, and even uh, either as and some of them have like seriously elaborate like mounts that are obviously designed for this that this thing to be a register to hold yeah. like a like a ten inch tablet, and then some of them are just carrying them around like at restaurants and stuff. And it seems to be uh, for these small mom and pop shops, it's either super old credit card stuff from the '90s, or they've just leapfrogged all of that and they're on iPads or something. It's interesting to watch it all, and I imagine yeah. those will probably adopt chip and pin pretty quick. Well, uh, it, well it was very, very quick here in Canada. It, it seems like the way they've incentivized it, the way that the merchants are going to be uh, held responsible for invalid transactions, it seems like they would whirl it out pretty quick. That usually, well, like, <laughs> usually gets people that, to move. You know, <laughs> for, for a Walmart where people are going to try to buy a TV with a stolen credit card, sure. Mm-hmm. For the mom-and-pop restaurant, mm-hmm. probably not, you know, yeah. their, their chargebacks are not a big thing for them. Yeah, I think that's pretty much where it seems to be falling down. And then, then because of that, there's just a lag of technology adoption there. Um, which, as we read from this, but, you know, means insecure here, things. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the people running the crash register are usually amused if you have to sign for something now. Because everything's so pin, right? Wow. Wow. Uh, it, but my one stupid business card, uh, credit card, uh, is chip and signature. So it works properly in the States before you guys had chip and pin. Yeah. Uh, and so even when I use it in Canada, it doesn't ask for a pin. It, it makes me sign. And there are always <laughs> strange looks. Uh, North Ranger points out in the chat room that merchants here in the U.S. have been responsible for fraud as of November 2015. So it doesn't seem uh, to be motivating them. It was them. supposed to be November 2015. Hmm. No, that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, okay. That's why most right. of them are doing it. They're just yeah. you know, not particularly fast at it. Have well, and the big ones Enterprise? are. Like Best like, Buy and if, stuff does. Yeah. But like if you uh, go back and look at the story we covered of why Target failed when it tried to move to Canada. It's yeah, like I that. all that shit happens at all stores, right? They're, they're, they try to use computers and they just totally <laughs> fall. Yeah, that is yeah. very good. They try to use computers and they just fail. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we have a story coming up later in the show about SAP, which was the thing that killed Target uh-huh. in Canada. Uh-huh. All right, well, any other thoughts on this particular story? Uh, just, you know, again, while chip and pin makes it harder to clone cards, I don't think it's a solution to malware. Yeah. Uh, but the whole FireEye report is here if you want to look into it. Yeah, check it out. Uh, link in the show notes. All right, I'll tell you about oh, yeah, IX systems. Is, uh, the other one we have is Tap and Pay. Have you, do you guys have that? Oh, like A-Wave? Uh, no, I've seen some like logos so for it, but it's never every, active anywhere I go. Okay, because basically every chip card here, uh, most of the terminals are also enabled. And if uh, depending on the limit you set, I think, but the default is $50, uh, 
uh, you can just tap your card against the machine. That is so nice. And no pin, nothing. Works great for like star buying coffee. I know you would think in our Starbucks fast food culture here in the U.S. to speed things up, you think we would be using well, that. Starbucks like crazy. already has their own card yeah. for this whole, for yeah. that whole thing. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it was very popular. I have seen the readers. I just have never seen any cards that use it. I just uh, the main thing I buy every week is groceries, and my bill is usually too high for the tap and pay thing. Yeah. Yeah, but that. sometimes I do it. Uh, we stopped at the grocery store just to pick up dessert one day, and I was just like, "Blunk." You know, my grocery store does Apple Pay, and that's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, uh, I don't yeah. own any Apple devices. No, but I think any of them that do Apple Pay also do all the other ones. That, and I think Usually, that, yes. yeah. So, all right. Well, let's take just a moment and thank IX Systems. We're both huge fans of IX Systems. Go over to ixsystems.com/techsnap and discover a land of rigs built with those gorgeous Intel processors designed for those server workloads. And these systems are going to work for any open source workload you have. Now, we often talk about IX Systems with FreeBSD, but they can also run different versions of the BSDs, Linuxes. Or maybe you should go check out their free NAS, like uh, it's free NAS, and then there's true NAS, yes. which is tr- which is really the NAS for the enterprise. Yeah, it's super enterprise. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like certified for VMware and everything. Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly, which is a huge deal. It's got the VMware certifications. It's it's won awards. It's actually yes, it actually competes against things like your EMCs, your yeah. your Dell SANs, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, and usually with one fewer zeros in your price tag. Yes, so this is that's a and big it's, difference. It's all of the great stuff we talk about IX every single week in that level of a product. And what's what's beautiful about it is then for the smaller situations you could get like you could run FreeNAS either on your own built box which which is also, you know, FreeNAS is support is a project supported by IX systems or you can get their FreeNAS mini or the FreeNAS XL and those things are rock solid production units and it's the same relationship with the same company for your huge high-end enterprise-grade stuff or your small business-grade stuff. If you want something that's rock-solid and bulletproof, I've got a free NAS mini server that sits out there and runs 24-7 for two years now as the back-end storage for the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, and it has been bulletproof. And I'm talking production downloads and uploads to it all the time. I'm talking about serving up multiple files. I'm talking about doing multimedia casting to the televisions in the studio and running our VMs over NFS. It is a monster, and it's it's the it's like the it's the older one. It's not even like the cool one with the awesome Intel Atom server processor yeah. in it. It's like the it's it's got I don't know what it has in. It. I, I think, think it has an i3, i3 in it. Yeah, yeah, like I, a first gen. I think. Yeah, but it's a rock solid device, and that's yep. just where they begin at. Plus, they have great enterprise grade support to match it. Really good stuff. Alan's been a customer for a while now, and yes. Alan's a picky sob. Also, you know, if even if you're not looking to buy hardware, or whatever, if you just you know, interested in stuff in the industry, their blog always has cool stuff. I was going to say that, yeah. Their blog is really great. In fact, you know, their blog is a little bit easier to get to now, which is nice. Something else we don't mention too often is they also have their case studies up on their site, ixsystems.com slash case dash studies, which is also a great place to go check out. I would yeah, follow the blog. Lots of companies that uh, yeah. have built stuff based on yeah. it. If you guys have the inkling and you want to work inside your company to move over to IX, so that way, you know, just think about that. Just think about what a huge improvement that might be for you. This might help grease those wheels a little bit. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap, though. That's where you go to land and support this show and maybe even get yourself that white paper. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Machines built by those incredible Intel processors and a great team. A deep bench of open source experts, hardware experts, industry professionals, enthusiasts, and just an overall great company that supports a lot of important open source projects and developers. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Okay, Alan, I was digging around the show notes. I looked ahead, and 
I love this next one. Uh, you, a lot of times, I'm, I'm guessing just from kind of what I read ahead, a lot of times you see people that will just like take a command online, copy and paste it into their terminal and run it, which is a bad yes, practice. We've, we've, we've shown before how uh, with some JavaScript, you can actually make it so you highlight some code and copy, and when you paste it, it's completely different code. Yes. 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 Uh, we've shown that on the show before. Yes. But the newest thing that lots of tutorials and like, or the installation instructions for stuff do, worse, the installation instructions for Intel's kernel hardening tool are this. Literally, it's like, so curl some URL of a shell script, pipe bash. Yeah. Right? I see a lot going of those. To download this script yeah. and run it directly in bash, yeah. and that'll install this application this for is, you. This is kind this of is, common this on... This is the new, you know, fake DevOps, you know, way to install things. That, and I'm going to just take one here. I'll just admit it, too. The Linux desktop is kind of a clown show for installing software if, you're on a whole, if you want to target a whole bunch of different distros. And so if you want one universal installation, sometimes it's just a good old shell script, and so sites will just have download this and run this, and it's basically that. It's a shell script that you just execute as root. It adds repos, adds keys, installs software. Sure. And, and that is terrible. But this one, <laughs> we're actually talking about piping the result of the curl directly yes. into bash. That is, so that is all. <laughs> looking at the file or downloading it or verifying that it's right. That's just you know? warp speed ahead. <laughs> yes. we, we, we've laughed at people before because of this, because like, well, if you're not doing it over HTTPS, somebody could do man in the middle and replace the shell script with something different. Mm -hmm. uh, so this one <laughs> over at idontplaydarts.com, which is a good way to uh, phrase this kind of stuff, is, in, you know, I don't play dangerously when I'm doing a sysadmin. Uh, but it's like, you know, if you, if you thought, if you think doing curl pipe bash is okay, you shouldn't have root access. <laughs> uh, so yeah, installing software by piping from curl to bash is obviously a bad idea and a knowledgeable user will most likely check the content first before doing it. Right. So people are like, oh, so I, I look at the URL and like see what the script is before I run it. Uh, so wouldn't it be great if the malicious payload could only render when piped into bash instead? So when the admin looks at it, it looks fine. It's a perfectly safe shell script. Oh, and no. when you pipe it into Bash, you get something <laughs> completely different. Evil. Uh, yeah, so we all know it's bad, but some people do it anyway. They tell themselves it's all right because they're checking the content. But uh, that only works if you end up downloading the same thing as you would actually, uh, and piping that into Bash compared to what you actually reviewed. So uh, luckily, the behavior of curl and wget or whatever else changes subtly when you pipe it into bash. This allows an attacker to present two different versions of their script depending on the context. Uh, it's not that the HTTP request from curl when piped to bash looks any different than the other that's you know, piped to standard out. In fact, for all intents and purposes, it's identical, right? So the bad guy can't just, oh, if it's curl, send this different thing because maybe that's what you're going to use to look at it and see that it's fine before running it. Mm -hmm. uh, and as far as the web server can tell, just by looking at your request, it can't tell if you're piping it into bash or not. Right. Uh, luckily, execution in bash is performed line by line. And so the speed that bash can ingest data is limited by the speed of the execution of the script. That means if we return a sleep at the start of our script, the TCP send stream will pause while we wait for the sleep to execute. This pause can be detected and used to render different content streams. Right? So if the shell script starts with sleep 10 uh, and then some other commands, as we're sending the data to the user, to the curl, eventually curl's, uh, the send buffer is going to get full and the receive buffer will be full and curl's buffer will be full and the window 
back to the application will be zero and no more data will be sent. Uh, and But if you're doing it to, say, your console, it's not going to do that. It's going to just, all the data will flow through because it's not being blocked. Mm -hmm. So by using a sleep at the top of the script, we can create this blocking action uh, that we can then detect on the server and only when we detect it, send the bad script. Wow. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not just as simple as wrapping, you know, socket.send sleep 10 in a timer and waiting for a send call to block. Um, the send and receive TCP streams in Linux are buffered on a per socket basis, uh, so we have to fill up those buffers before the call to send huh. block. Uh, and we know the and then curl has its own buffer writing for writing to the pipe. Uh, so you know it'll have downloaded data out of its local uh, to the receive socket buffer and tried to put it into the the sure. buffer to the pipe to DD. Right, we got buffers all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. We have to fill all of those before we'll get back uh, a window update with a size set to zero telling us that we can't send any more data because it hasn't all been received yet. There, you know, we've got the maximum amount of data in flight. The only character you can really use to print to the screen um, that won't show up when you're just you know, piping into the console or looking at it in Chrome is the null byte because it won't render on most mm -hmm. consoles and won't render in Chrome if the uh, character set is set to HTML. Um, or the content type. And so as we know, the content length data is transferred uh, at the beginning. So we have to switch to chunking, chunked encoding so that we can have a variable length stream. Uh, and then we could just send strings of null bytes uh, that are the same size as TCP send buffer until we get the blocking action caused by the uh, buffer being full. Or if we don't get it after a certain amount of time, we can just send the, the safe script. Uh, so the attacker sends chunks of nulls until all the buffers on the client side are full. And uh, because Bash is sleeping uh, and not receiving data yet, mm -hmm. and then all the attacker has to do is give their different <laughs> payload. So we can see when we just run curl, we get sleep three, <laughs> hello there, nothing. <laughs> if we run it again but pipe it into Bash, we get asleep and then troll face. Yeah, troll face. I love it. Which is your malicious content. Yeah. And so it detects when you do it wrong and uh, burns you for it. <laughs> source code is linked there too which is great <laughs> which is just a nice touch hmm. yeah curl sleeper agent that's a good title so um i wonder how the hell they thought of this they must have just been sitting around going how can we stop this what can we do to make a point well how can we prove a point <laughs> you know and then, but and then i'm just still from just there. flabbergasted by when you go to get intel's kernel hardening tool for linux and the install instructions are curl pipe batch. <sighs> that is super disappointing, isn't it? It was just like, oh my goodness, that is terrible, terrible, terrible. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of a lazy way to do it. And that's just, there's no it's real... Like, I, I understand that it's really not any better than downloading a shell script and running it. But just by doing it that way, it's just... It just should only... <laughs> It's basically targeting at people that shouldn't be sysadmins. If if that's how you want it, if you want just one command and it works, <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to have admin access on anything. Yeah, your, like your own desktop, let alone. Yeah, yeah. Serve. It's a little dangerous. It's a little dangerous. Yeah. Ah, uh, all right. Well, other than that, a little bit of uh, I feel like that's a PSA you just gave us there, uh, Alan. Anything else on that story? Uh, no. Well, let me take a moment. 
I'll tell you about Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there, save yourself some cash, and support the show. You want to talk about running as admin. One of the things I've never gotten in the... And I don't really understand how it even got popular. I guess people just desperately needed mobile phones, but the current uh, cell phone model that the duopolies benefit from is obviously one where you are just a user, and you get a device, and that device is on that network, and it's locked to that network in some weird way that they can still get away with, that you can go out of your way to work around. And it's limited in how much you can do. You have to pay into certain amounts. It doesn't It doesn't really, if you think about it, it would never, if it was a fair market today, it would never succeed. Like, if they had to start from the beginning, the way the current carriers operate would never work. And that's where Ting is really different. See, Ting is, I think, if you were if you were to start today, in 2016, Ting would have it, just this would be the most obvious way to do it. First of all, you only pay for what you use. You don't have to have, like, a mythical, oh, I might use uh, five gigabytes, I might use... 800 minutes, like you don't have to play this guessing game. You just pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line. What I think the most beautiful thing about that that people don't often realize is that means it scales crazy good. You can have 10 devices on there, and it is there's just nobody who is matching that. $6 for the line. You can bring your own device. You can get the GSM SIM. So go to techsnap.ting.com to find out more. No contracts, no early termination fees. In fact, they hate those things. <clears throat> Ting hates them so much. They hate them so much. They will help pay for your early termination fee when you come over to Ting. That's how much they hate them. Check them out, too. They have radically good customer support. I mean, stuff that's just not matched by any other carrier. They have the best dashboard in the business. I, I have never actually called Ting to activate any of my phone devices. The one time I've had to call Ting customer service, and it was like, there was, and they, st- they stuck with me, was I had an issue with my MiFi on the road. Uh, but every single phone, including my Nexus 5s or an iPhone or uh, the, when I had the HTC One on Ting, uh, when I've had the Nexus 5X on Ting, I've had uh, the Evo 4G on Ting, um, I've had a lot of phones. I've had the iPhone 5 on Ting, um, all of them. I, don't, they're not, I only have three lines current now. All of them, all of those phones, I never once actually called into Ting to activate. Their website is just super good. And so, like, if I'm sitting around at 8.30 at night, I'm like, you know what? I'd like to try the latest version of Android for a while on this phone and get it activated and actually really test it with service. I'll just go to the Ting website. I put in the IMI or whatever it is on the phone, the, the ID number. I activate this, the plan, and within a couple of minutes, I've got service, and I'm good to go. And I just pay for what I use, and when I don't want it, I turn it off. It's really simple. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there. Check it out. They also, speaking of blogs, have a great blog. I love this. I love these kind of reviews. A month with a device, not a weekend with a device, not four days before Apple releases it, and so you can post your review up on Engadget. A month with the Ansatel One Touch Idle 3. A great review to go read on the Ting blog. And <clears throat> under 200 bucks. With the TechSnap discount, you could get the Idle 3 for 153 bucks. Unlocked, no contract, pay for what you use. It can go up to 120 gigabytes of storage with the micro SD slot, which is awesome. It has a reversible... Why, why do every phone not have a micro SD I slot? I don't know, dude. I don't know like what is up with that. They took them out on purpose just to screw you. <laughs> yeah, I, it's... Yeah, it is a bummer. It's got a 13-megapixel camera, which is not bad. I love that. Uh, so check it out. It's a great phone. It gills up to Lollipop, the current version of Lollipop right now, uh, for 153 bucks when you go to techsnap.ting.com. On the crazy, crazy, crazy bargain end, they just added the Huawei U3900. Uh, it's a refurb. $38. 
So it's just, if you just need a flip phone to make calls, uh, or you need you know you want to give it to a family member because remember they're only paying when they use it, and this thing's gonna be dead cheap on Ting. I mean, look at that, thirty eight bucks, no contract, ships tomorrow. You support the show, and you've got an emergency phone with a battery that probably lasts a week. It's pretty ridiculous. I don't. I doubt they're gonna have very many of these. Uh, <laughs> you know what's you know what's funny? So it only has a nine hundred milliamp battery, but they still the spec sheet measures the phone's battery life in days, not hours. <laughs> It's so great. Well, it's, it's, most of the power on your phone usually goes to the screen, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Techsnap.ting.com. Go there, support the show, read their blog to find out more about the idol. They've got all the great devices all the way up to the latest phones. Techsnap.ting.com. So, Someday uh, they will announce they're coming to Canada. I hope I so. I, screwed. <laughs> I hope they announce they're going to do fiber here in little old Arlington, Washington. Well, there's that. But yeah. uh, <laughs> seriously, my phone company, it was like, Oh, your contract's up, so let's renew it. If we see you own your device, that's cool. Uh, our contract always comes with a phone, so we'll just send you a free phone, too. I'm like, not really that I want it. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, no, like, fine. <laughs> oh, uh, now you have a device balance of $400 that you have to pay off by doing no. your contract. Yeah, see, this is the kind of shenanigans. Like, uh, you know, uh, the, I, the contract wasn't going to be any cheaper without it, and so they were going to keep the money either way. There's but. a carrier that launched this uh, every year. You can upgrade for 15 bucks a month. You pay 15 bucks a month, and we'll upgrade your phone every time the new phone comes out for the iPhone. And so I went in there to ask them about it because I was like, geez, this is pretty competitive. I'll see how they compare to Ting. Uh, and so to get the phone you'd actually want, like say one that was more than 16 gigs of storage, and then you have to get mandatory insurance. They don't tell you that in the ad. It turns out to be like $24 a month <laughs> on top of the 60 or $70 a month service plan, which is the minimum service plan that you have to buy, which has like a limited, a limited amount of day. It was uh, the, the scams and hoops you have to jump through for all of the other carriers. It's ridiculous. That's where Ting is so simple. At the end of the day, yep. what I really appreciate about Ting after like more than two years, of being a customer is there's no gimmicks. It's just really straightforward, simple, and uh, I really appreciate that. I don't really have well, time I for the other stuff. The, the big one to look at is if you remember way back, there used to be services where you paid a subscription for your internet and they gave you your computer with it. Yes, right? yes. Uh, yeah. And all those went away because it turns out people want to own their computer yeah. and then just use it and be able to switch ISPs if they want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Same thing with the smartphone. for that. But yes, yeah. it's like, how did we not learn this with a smartphone? Were well, I think really we're starting to figure it out. someone else's phone? Yeah, I think you know, that's why... I, I've owned all but one of my phones ever. Yeah. And the one time I didn't, I was not pleased. Yeah, I think that's why Ting's been growing like crazy in the last year, is because yep. of that. Uh, so, Google sort of automated themselves offline? What happened here? Yes. What's going on? Uh, so, this is a little bit old, but I meant to get to it before, but with our crazy travels uh -huh. and stuff we didn't get to. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so back on Monday, April 11th, Google Compute Engine, which is basically Google's competitor to Amazon's EC2, right? You can basically pay Google to rent virtual machines to run whatever you want to the yeah, cloud. Yeah, and there, uh, yeah, yeah. Their instances in every region in the world lost external connectivity for a total of 18 minutes. Some of them Holy for longer. crap. Uh, so yeah, they basically all went offline. Uh, so this is the story of how the automation knocked all of Google Compute Engine off of the internet. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so Google uses contiguous groups of uh, IP addresses, known as IP blocks, uh, for Google Compute Engine VMs, the network load balancers, the cloud VPN, and all the other services which uh, need to communicate with users and systems outside of Google. These IP blocks are announced to the rest of the internet via the industry standard BGP protocol, and it is these announcements which allow systems outside of Google's network to find the Google Compute Engine services. So 
you know, that, that this is how the internet works. You have a router and it tells all of its neighbors, hey, here's my set of IP addresses. And, you know, if you have packets for these IP addresses, send them to me. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the next router aggregates all of its own plus all of its neighbors and sends it to all of its neighbors and it yeah. spreads out. And eventually everybody in the Internet knows how to get every IP yeah. address. I mean, if you're talking about BGP, you're, yeah. I mean, people use BGP even on their lands if they have a, if they have a large yeah. land. I mean, exactly. I've, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and basically the way it works is if you stop announcing an address after a couple of minutes, the announcement times the data in the next the neighbor router times out and it stops sending packets to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. What Google does, uh, to maximize service performance, uh-huh. Google's network system announces the same IP address blocks from several different locations on our network so that users take the shortest available path through the internet to reach their Google service. Okay. This sure. approach uses enhanced reliability, uh, or also enhances reliability. If a user is unable to reach one location announcing an IP block due to an internet failure between the user and Google, or their ISP or whatever, this approach will uh, send the user to the second closest uh, point of announcement. This is part of the internet's fabled ability to route around problems, and it masks or avoids numerous localized outages every week as individual systems on the internet have temporary problems. So basically, they do what's called anycast, where normally you don't know, one IP address points to one specific server in one specific place. Whereas with Google's uh, computer engine thing, they announce all of the addresses from all of their data centers, and you automatically go to whichever one's closer. So, uh, Back on the 11th at uh, 1450, so that's 2.50 p.m. Pacific time on the 11th, the Google engineers removed an unused Google Compute, Eng- uh, Compute Engine IP block from our network configuration. So they have a whole bunch of blocks of IPs, and there was one that wasn't being used, and they're like, let's stop sure. routing that so we can use it somewhere else. Sure, sure. Um, so they instructed Google's automated systems to propagate the new configuration across our network. By itself, this sort of change was harmless and has been performed previously without incident. However, on this occasion, uh, Google's network configuration management software detected an inconsistency in the newly supplied configuration. The uh, inconsistency was triggered by a timing quirk in the IP block removal. The IP block had been removed from one configuration file, but this change had not yet been propagated to a second configuration file also used by the network management uh, configuration software. Uh, In attempting to resolve this inconsistency, the network management software is designed to fail safe and revert to its current configuration rather than proceeding with the new configuration. So the automation system detected a problem with the config file and was supposed to continue using the original one instead of going to the next one, newer version. However, in this instance, a previously unseen software bug was triggered, and instead (laughs) of maintaining or retaining the previously known good configuration, Uh the management software instead removed all Google Compute Engine IP blocks from the new configuration and began pushing this new modified configuration with incomplete data to the entire network. Did you say a bot? Uh, not a bot, but oh, yeah, okay. basically automated software. Okay. I thought you said so, a bot. I was like, wow, really? Google's using like a bot. Yeah, I so guess. It, it removed all the IP blocks from their configuration instead of pushing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> That is a bit well, of a mistake. That's an error, you could yeah. say. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Misconfiguration. Unseen uh, bug. <laughs> so one of our oh, core man. principles at Google is defense in depth. The Google networking system has a number of safeguards to prevent them from propagating invalid or incorrect configurations in the event of an upstream failure or bug. Uh, These safeguards include a canary step, where the configuration is deployed to a single site, and that site is verified to still be working correctly, uh, and then a progressive rollout happens, where we add one more site and one more site, keep watching, and make sure they don't break. 
Uh, this makes changes to only a fraction of the sites at a time so that a novel failure, meaning one they've never seen before, oh, okay. uh, can be caught at an early stage before it becomes a widespread problem. In this event, uh, the canary step correctly indicated that the new configuration was in fact unsafe. Crucially, however, a second software bug in the management software did not propagate the canary step's conclusions back to the push process, and thus the push process concluded that the new configuration was valid and began a progressive rollout. Mm. So the canary was like, no, stop, it's bad, it's going to wreck everything. And the software was like, it's okay, okay, I'm going. <laughs> so he got pushed back, but it didn't go percolate high enough to actually stop the rollout. That's interesting, though. That's a neat system, it sounds like. If it worked. Yeah, if, if it had actually worked, it <laughs> yeah. would be pretty cool, yes. <laughs> huh, I'm thinking about that, you know, because that means uh, companies like Snapchat were down, uh, Rovio, Akon Academy. Yep. yep. Uh, you know, most of them, uh, for most of this time, they would have just been getting poorer and poorer performance as you had to go to a further and further away ah, data center to I get see. to them. I see, right, right. Uh, and then for a total of 18 minutes, everything was offline. Right. But we're about to get to that. So the automation software detected the new configuration was bad, but ignored the signal that it should stop and went ahead anyway. As the rollout progressed, uh, those sites which had been announcing Google Compute Engine IP blocks ceased to do so, so and when they received the new configuration. So after a couple of minutes, their peers would stop sending them traffic. The fault tolerance built into our network design worked correctly and sent Google Compute Engine to the remaining sites, which were still announcing the IP blocks. As the progressive rollout kept going, more and more sites dropped offline, though. Uh, eventually, with no sites left announcing the Google Compute Engine blocks, incoming traffic from the internet to Google Compute Engine dropped quickly, reaching more than 95% packet loss at about uh, 1909 uh, Pacific. That's a bummer. Yeah. So in total, this kind of happened over a course of five hours. You know, five hours when they first made the mistake, and then as it rolled out, it just got worse and worse. Uh, internal monitors generated dozens of alerts in the seconds after traffic loss became visible at uh, 1908. Uh, and the Google engineers who had been investigating a localized failure of the Asia-East-1 VPN, which was one of the first things to be hit because it wasn't spread out as many places because it only announced in the data centers in Asia-East. Uh, so it went offline first and they were looking at it, but then all of a sudden they get alerts, oh, everything is down. So the engineers now knew that they had uh, a widespread and serious problem. They did precisely what we trained them for and decided to revert the most recent configuration changes uh, and made the network uh, have a problem uh, before even knowing for sure what the problem was. So it doesn't matter uh, why things aren't working. Let's just roll back to the previous config and get everything working again. Go and back, go deal back. With it after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I've been there. <laughs> uh, this was the correct action and the time from uh, detection to decision to revert uh to the end of the outage was thus just 18 minutes. Mm, okay. Uh, with the immediate outage over, the team froze all configuration changes to the network and worked uh, in shifts overnight to ensure that, uh, first, that the systems were stable and that there was no remaining customer impact, and then to determine the root cause of the problem. By 7 a.m. on April 12th, the team was confident they had established the root cause as a software bug in the network configuration management software. Uh, so then Google's uh, started making changes to make sure this doesn't happen again. I think they made more than 14 changes so far. Hmm. Uh, but things that they're planning to do still, although some of these might actually be done now that it's a month later, hmm. uh, monitoring targeted Google Compute Engine network paths to determine if they change or cease to function. So if, certain <laughs> pa if, if the route to this changes at all, yeah. we should probably have an alert. 
uh, comparing the IP block announcements before and after a network configuration change to ensure that they are identical in size and coverage. So get an alert if any IP addresses yeah. stop being announced. Yep. Although in this case, that was the point of this up- original update that caused the problem. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, but you don't often checks. make changes like that. Yes, exactly. Uh, semantic checks for network configurations to ensure that certain uh, specific cloud IP blocks are always in them. Mm. And they say, uh, so Google says, we take all outages seriously, but we are particularly concerned with outages that affect multiple zones simultaneously yeah. because it is difficult for our customers to mitigate the effects of such outages. You know, Google doesn't guarantee that they're going to have 100% uptime and everything. But they tell you if you set up your network so you have some VMs over here and some VMs over here and set up our failover system, both of these won't be down at the same time. Just like except Amazon says. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Except when they are. Yeah. So when Google <laughs> had an outage that affected all of their zones simultaneously, yeah. they were, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for their customers to do anything about it. Uh, this incident report is both longer and more detailed than uh, usual precisely because we consider the April 11th event so important and want you to understand why it happened and what we are doing about it. Hmm. It is our hope that by being as transparent and uh, providing considerable detail, we both help you to build more reliable services and we demonstrate our ongoing commitment to offering you a reliable Google Cloud platform. Yeah, can you imagine how intense the pressure is there during outages? That must be, a, that must be an intense environment. Yeah. Oof, just, I know what it's like here. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, you know, that sounds like pretty solid and sound stuff, adding those alerts. Pretty obvious yeah. in retrospect, uh, I suppose, but not the things I've ever thought of really monitoring. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you have to be doing a lot of BGP for a bunch of that. It makes yeah, sense. Yeah. But uh, it's, you know. I did have a client. Trying to automate too much of that is. <laughs> I did have a client that had um, um, a bunch of buildings detached, desperate, 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 or however you say that, buildings. Disparate. Yeah, and uh, and because we're in Podoc, Arlington, the uh, only way to connect those buildings was point-to-point wireless. And as you can imagine, point-to-point wireless can go out from time to time. And so you would have to, if, if one building link went down, the other buildings would still need to get to their file servers and whatnot. And the other, so it would have to route around that. And that's, that's pretty much just how we used BGP. And this is only that's a 200 cool. user land, but we still had a use for BGP for navigating a sort of a semi-rocky wireless infrastructure. Did you do any tuning, or did it actually take five minutes to figure out there was a problem? No, it, it actually, for the most part, was more of a pain in the ass than it was a benefit, because where it, it was early days, and we were dealing with a bunch of... We had HP switches, Dell switches, which were which were their own thing at the time, and Cisco switches. So it was it took us a while to dial it in. But I, I think I recall by the time we had a contractor come in and help with us, because we were having so many problems... Um, it actually worked pretty well. We did some testing where it actually got to the point where we would just take a device offline, and the system seemed to work pretty well. So, hmm. yeah, I don't remember the details, but I remember it was a nightmare getting it going because <laughs> uh, sometimes things would mess up, especially on those old Dell switches, which had this really crazy firmware. Um, it was not good. Any other thoughts on that story, Mr. Jude? Uh, nope, that's it for that one. Well, you know what is good? DigitalOcean. In fact, DigitalOcean's got a couple of things up their sleeves I want to tell you about. Use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get rig on demand. In fact, you can start in less than 55 seconds, and the pricing plans start at only $5 a month. 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they all SSDs, y'all. Oh, yeah. And they've got... A blazing fast CPU in that bad mamma gem and a terabyte of transfer. 
They got great bandwidth too. And data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto. They got the latest distros and FreeBSD is up there now. They have FreeBSD 10, what, up there? 10.2. Ten uh, they're working on 10.3. Ten 10.3. Ten also, I'm probably not supposed to say anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, I did get some email from some developers at DigitalOcean uh, who are trying to get ZFS going in the <gasps> droplets. Oh, man. Yeah, that's going to be a thing, dude. Well, and you know, I wonder too. They've got uh, they're working on a, a block storage that they have an yes, invite out uh, for on the front page on, on a certain page of the website. There's a link to sign up to to yeah. get into the yeah. I, the I, oh, I signed up beta. too. I totally signed up. Yeah. Well, because it's exactly what you've been looking for, right? It's like, well, mm-hmm. I need I want like bulk storage for my droplet, mm-hmm. and yeah. ideally, I want to be able to move it between my droplets. Yeah. Yeah, that's what uh, it is. right now I have a couple of, so they make it really easy to scale CPU and memory, and then I have, using private networking, another storage server, which works super well because private networking mm-hmm. doesn't count against my transfer. Uh, I noticed they just recently posted a couple of days ago how to set up an open VPN server on Ubuntu 16.04 if you want to get into open VPN out there. This would be a well, great tutorial to read. You know, it shows how good, uh, on top of the tutorials there are, that they're a distro that's only been up for like two weeks. Yeah, oh, they're serious about these tutorials. It's really nice. DigitalOcean.com, just use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word in all lowercase. That gives us credit and gives you a $10 credit. DigitalOcean.com. So So on top of working with the ZFS stuff for them and performance in general for Uh FreeBSD, I will be using their API a bunch soon, and I will have fun things to say about that. Ooh, interesting. We've been been messing around with their API, too. We really like it. Uh, So, yes. We should collaborate. That's good. I'd love to know. Uh, They have a a great API for that. So uh, there is a little drama going on over at VirusTotal. What's the word there, Alan? Yeah, so VirusTotal is a popular online malware aggregation service. Basically, it was a website that set up back in 2004 and allowed you to upload viruses, uh, and then the samples went out to the virus company so they could try to detect them. And it also originally, uh, or eventually grew into a thing where when you upload a virus, uh, it can actually tell you which virus scanners detect it and which ones don't yet. That's cool. Uh, So it started back in 2004, but it was acquired by Google in 2012. Uh, and basically, researchers and users submit malware samples, and they get tested against the uh, static detection engines of more than 50 different antivirus vendors, and you get a little report. So I have an example linked here. Oh, cool. You can, uh, you can see uh, what it looks like when you upload some malware. Yeah, bring that up. Um, however, there's been a concern that many of the uh, next-gen security startups... Yeah, so if you look at the thing here, you can see... Uh, the different antivirus things, and then the result in the middle is what virus they detected as, and you can see the uh, level of um, <laughs> consistency you get uh, for the names, the, the naming of They're viruses. They're just all over vendors. the place. Yeah, uh, and then at the end there is the the uh, date of the um, file. The, oh, interesting. Um, when they started detecting it. Yeah. What do they call it? When they added to their pattern yeah. recognition. Yeah. Oh well, I think it's it's what version of the pattern recognition it was matched against. So it'll usually always be a date within the last week or so. Yeah, okay. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can upload a sample and it'll test it against all the virus scanners and Ooh, tell you Ooh, look at this. It. it gives me behavioral information. Yeah, so they also run it in a sandbox and then you can tell it, uh, you can see what it actually does when you run it. This is Unix malware you uploaded. Uh, I didn't upload this. This is, um, oh. it's an APK. It's an Android malware. Ah, uh, I see. I was, I was noticing it's going to slash mount slash SD card. There it is. Boom, right there. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah. is some Android malware that I've linked because it was just the first link I found. Huh. I, 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 I was like, wait a minute. Those aren't Windows paths. <laughs> yeah. um, so 
there's been a concern that uh, these next-gen security companies and startups are abusing the VirusTotal API rather than building their own detection engine. So instead of you know having some, writing their own software to detect viruses, they've just you know grabbed the the hashes of these files and sent them to VirusTotal and be like, hey, is this a known virus? Okay. Uh, and basically piggybacking on the work of all the traditional AV vendors, the 50-plus vendors that are in the list there. Uh, worse, this type of use doesn't contribute anything back to the VirusTotal community. Uh, right, so yeah, that you know, seems fair. Yeah, uh, you're you know, scraping using for information. You, right, you're scraping that, and, and you're not even sending them the new samples necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Google uh, this week changed the terms of service of the site, saying that all scanning companies will now be required to integrate their detection scanner into the public uh, VirusTotal interface in order to be eligible to receive antivirus results as part of the VirusTotal API services. Hmm. Uh, so if you want to uh, be able to use the API from your virus scanner, you have to make your virus scanner available to VirusTotal so that uh, your scanner can be added to the, the results. Do they say, when they say available, do they say in what way? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, okay. In general, it means you have to give them your engine so that Google can run it. And in a VM or something? Yeah. Okay. That seems kind of reasonable. Well, 50 other vendors are already doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, if you're taking and not giving back, then that's an issue in this case. Um, Additionally, new scanners that want to join the community will need to uh, prove a certificate, or sorry, a certification and or independent review from security testers according to the best practices of the Anti-Malware Testing Standards Organization. Uh, So, you know, you have to actually prove that you have a virus scanner that does something before you can join. (laughs) Uh, It must actually be a functional product. (laughs) Um, So traditional vendors have applauded the move. So there's links here from uh, Trend Micro's blog or the blog of uh, one of the board members from Malwarebytes. Oh, all right. And they're talking about why they think this is a good thing. Uh, However, I think it was the Malwarebytes one called out a couple of specific uh, cloud vendors or, or, you know, next-gen vendors. Uh, And, you know, those next-gen vendors uh, didn't think too highly of that. Hmm. Yeah. So they, uh, in the in the response called the AV bomb that never was, uh, <laughs> they talk about you know how some of this is just the old industry trying to you know stave off their competitors or whatever. Uh, in particular, I think it was the Malwarebytes blog called out Silence and Sentinel One, um, two of the bigger next gen security companies, and uh, so. The people from both of those companies, Silence and Sentinel One, actually posted responses in that blog post. Uh, kind of refuting some of the claims of the traditional AV vendors. Oh, interesting. Down here, like in the comments? Uh, yep. If you, yeah, there's uh, the reaction by Silence. Yeah, I see that. And, uh, another one by Sentinel-1. Uh, and those, those are like full interview almost. Uh, and then Palo Alto Networks and CrowdStrike also provided uh, responses, or at least summaries. Um, there is some drama going on here, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, and obviously, you know, the new cloudy-based people versus the old, uh, you know, antivirus people. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the uh, startups are actually, you know, bogus things that are just bogus, right? Like Norse was. Uh, but, you know, Silence in particular seems to actually have a real thing. Uh, although theirs is all based on like math and, and heuristics. And so is quite a bit different than, you know, rather than just being, oh, we collect the malware by finding it in the wild. Uh which makes it more reactive. So, 
basically, if you had a malware scanner that every time it saw a new file, it could send that file to its database. Uh, it could detect new viruses faster than you know your typical Symantec type one, where they have to eventually find out about the virus and then get a copy of it and then run it in the VM and see what it can do and then make a, a detection for it, right? Do you remember when we talked about the Microsoft solution that is aggregating the Microsoft bug heuristics back to make a perimeter defense system? Did we talk about that on this show? A little bit, yeah. That's what I, I mean, that. essentially, Microsoft... That one was just finding the crashes in Windows. Right, okay, I, th- I don't know, maybe we didn't talk. So there's, they're, they're actually going to be rolling out a new product that is like a... Right, I remember that, Yeah, yes. it's like a... They're, and they're going to be collating all of the different Windows 10 machines and other things that are reporting back to, to sort of arm this thing with information. They're essentially they're rolling their own version of a cloud-powered whatever you want to call it. And they're in the situation, uh, the, the position where they can get it on everybody's computer even when you haven't you know, paid for their software. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it's really Microsoft in a kind of uh, anti-competitive situation right there. Yeah, because they've got those metrics coming back from every computer out there. It's it's, uh, it's part of the problem of Windows 10 spying on you. There will be some valid uses for it and some actual useful outcome. But for you could see why but. there could be some validity to the oh, new yes. the quote unquote new guys that want to. Yes, some of the new guys, you know, like Silence, are actually a real product that works. Mm-hmm. The problem is some of them are literally just oh, we'll just run all your files through this API. Yeah. and uh, charge you a lot of money. <laughs> like we have the collective detection power of like all fifty virus scanners. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, those people are getting cut off, you know. For example, I think Silence and Sentinel One said they don't even use Virus Total. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, then obviously you're not going to be, you're not going to miss the API you never use. That's right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it still seems like a pretty good, pretty good service for customers. So, yeah, in, in the end, you can kind of see the point of both sides of this one. Yeah, you know, uh, if, if if companies aren't giving back and are just taking from the community, that's not very helpful. Uh, you know, the whole point of this is the antivirus vendors sharing their stuff with each other. Where normally they're quite secretive, right? They don't want to give away their IP. And, you know, the, the how their staff. detection engine actually works is their entire business model. Yep. Right? And having theirs be slightly better than somebody else's. Um, but, you know, as a community service and as a thing for researchers, having this available to researchers as, you know, quick way to run it against every virus scanner is really powerful and I, I wouldn't want to see that go away i agree interesting story alan thanks for sharing that with us yeah so uh it'll it'll be interesting to see how this impacts the network i imagine or the uh, industry i don't imagine it'll actually be that much outside of maybe a few shady startups that'll go away because they lost access to the api uh but they were probably not going to survive anyway so I agree. Uh, before we jump into the feedback, we should give a mention to uh, BSD Now, episode 141, BSD Likes Ike. <laughs> Just got yes. published a little bit earlier today. Any uh, Anything worth uh, mentioning? Well, I'm sure there's lots uh, to worth It was worth a mentioning, great interview but... we did in Tokyo with oh. uh, Ike from uh, mostly about OpenSense, but also just BSDs in general and jails mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, lots of other good news stuff. Cool. Uh-huh. You know, some hints that... Uh, FreeBSD might finally have graphic support all the way up to Skylake in the next couple of weeks. Hey, oh, nice. Oh, and also we we should mention too. Oh, yes. The uh, BSD Now uh, t-shirts are limited run yes. for there's a there's an event coming up, right? Yes, uh, BSD can is in a couple of weeks. And yeah. uh, so we had to uh, we were a little late thinking of doing this, uh, but we had to set a, a short enough date that you'll have time to end the so that this campaign can run 
and things get printed and everybody actually gets their shirt in time to bring it with them to BSD can. Classy looking shirt. I like that. Yes. that logo. Boy, that logo looks really good on blue too. Uh, yes. So check it out at um, teespring.com slash BSD now. Yeah, I know with, with the, uh, yeah, and we also had the link for the, you know, we, if enough people are interested in the old BSD now shirt, uh, then Teespring will reprint that if enough people are interested. Uh, but this one is a lot more subtle, right? Instead of huge yeah. chest covered with yeah, uh, which is it's interesting because that's that's how we went with the new last logo too. Is we decided yeah. to go a little smaller because people are like, "Hey, man, I love your logo, but I don't really want to be a walking uh, d- uh, billboard for you." And I'm like, "Okay, fair enough. I understand. How about above your boob?" And, and uh, it looks good there. Well, also, uh, I like having the option of colors. I have so many black T-shirts and yeah. so many white T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love gray, and blue is my favorite color. Yeah, that. Oh, I bet the logo. Look, yeah, that does. You know, that's just a, that is a that the 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 and BSD the now little. Uh, uh, the hoodie they have in both a light gray and a dark gray. Like if you like the ash, or if you like the darker. Gray. Oh man, they have their darker gray is nice. I got a couple of unfiltered shirts in that one, and they're my favorite. They yeah. are my f- absolute favorite. I'm gonna have to get one. I might have to get the blue hoodie because my my blue hoodie from Sweden shrunk on me and it's too small. I'm I'm in I'm in a mood for a t-shirt. I think I'm gonna get a gray t-shirt. I think that's what I'm doing. I love that. I think we get a blue t-shirt. Teespring.com/bsd now if you'd like to get yourself a shirt. Uh, and uh, hopefully they will ship in time, so uh, you can go grab it mm-hmm. now. That's pretty cool. I'm glad you guys got that. I like that. I like the smaller logo too. We'll, we'll play with that more and more. Uh, all right. Well, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Maybe start a thread in our subreddit. Thanks for that at techsnap.reddit.com. John writes in with our first email this week. He says he loves the show. Well, what a good man. We love him. And uh, he has a question. How can I do remote access Plex style? All I have to do in Plex is log into my settings, tick a box to allow remote access, and Bob is indeed my uncle. I didn't have to do anything to the router or firewall. Now I can access my Plex server from the web browser from outside of my network as if I was at home. I've also noticed that OwnCloud has a similar solution. They call it the OwnCloud proxy. It allows connecting to your privately hosted OwnCloud from anywhere without requiring you to make changes to your local network settings. No router configuration, no DNS entries, no domain name registration. He says, how can I set up this kind of service? Where do I start? What to Google? I'm not looking to replace Plex remote access, but I'd like to replace OwnCloud proxy. Will I be able to use this solution for anything other than just OwnCloud? Thanks for the great show. Keep it up. So I'm not sure how the Plex one works, but in general... Uh, you have these kind of proxy app type things, or sometimes they're called a cloud bridge. Uh, I know I think PCBSD is going to have one for their sysadmin tool. Uh, and basically, it's a little app you would run on something like a DigitalOcean droplet. Um, and your server at home connects up to the DigitalOcean droplet, uh, getting through the firewall there. And then your device can connect to the DigitalOcean droplet, and it allow it you know has the authentication or whatever, and then allows you to connect to the thing at your house. Uh, Basically, punching through the firewall. It basically works the same way that uh, super, uh, what they call them? Super peer? What was the thing called in Skype back when oh, yeah. were punching no, through they, the firewall? They, yeah, they were uh, super nodes. Super nodes, yep, that's yes. what they were. Uh, so basically, <clears throat> this would be a private super node. Yeah, uh, and, and Plex is essentially, when you, you go into the Plex, your local Plex server, when you log in, it's connecting to the Plex cloud service, which is proxying mm-hmm. the connection. Uh, it's, there's it, obviously, it's it. not proxying the video you're watching through it, right? 
No, no. When you play the video, well, what it does is it negotiates the session for you. So it handles all of the communicating back and forth between the two systems. So I guess maybe it's just acting as like a stun server. Yeah, I guess that'd be a good way to look at it. Yeah. Well, it's so just wanted, like you have a you the way it works would say you have either the web page or you have an app on your on your mobile device. You run the Plex app. It connects to the Plex cloud service, which is communicating with your Plex server. Gives has the entire inventory, the whole library, as they call it. Then you're browsing the library. That's not the library isn't necessarily coming directly from the Plex server, but once you queue off the file, it negotiates that connection. And and I don't recall specifically, but you know I could try right now and see. I could look and see what it says the IP is. So I, if I log into Plex, so and, I'm guessing uh, it's doing something to open the port to allow you to connect. I'm just not sure. Probably how using that. like universal plug and play or something like that. Well I think it doesn't require that though. Like with with the well, one that, like, I don't know. proxy or a cloud bridge, the idea is that you'd actually be routing the traffic through your digital ocean droplet. So the Plex one, they provide the service, and I don't know how that because uh, I'm sure they're not wasting all their bandwidth. No, plus they'd have cop they'd have copyright issues out the wazoo yeah. if they did. Exactly. Uh, okay, so let's see. I'm connected to Plex and I'm gonna play this episode of Batman from Angela's, you know, it doesn't give me any URL information. Okay. It just, uh, it just, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, so it's playing. Um, but it doesn't are tell you, me. What machine, what kind of OS are you on? It's a Linux box. You're going to well, start terminal run like Netstat. Yeah, Netstat. see what, oh yeah, I'll just leave it playing in the background and keep the connection open. That's, yeah, yeah, and just see if you can, <laughs> if you notice what the IP is. I don't know. Do you know what your home IP address is or Angela's house uh, IP address uh -uh. is? No, but I would probably, if I recognized it. Well, if you don't put the minus N in, it'll resolve names, but it'll take a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do see I do see a name. that it, I do see something that looks like her, and it looks like it's an HTTPS connection. Right. Huh, interesting. But normally that would have to be forwarded to work. Yeah. So I don't know how the Plex one works, but most of the proxy-based ones uh, or cloud bridges work by basically your thing at home connects out to the cloud and then you connect out to the cloud and it basically just proxies bits back and forth. Uh, the disadvantage is it basically has to receive all the data from your house and send it back to your phone or whatever and vice versa. So it does use some bandwidth, but you know, you get a terabyte of bandwidth included with your droplet for $5, it'll be fine. Uh, so, you know, the problem is most of these proxies are specific to each individual application, like the own yes. proxy. Yep. Uh, yep. So yep. your generic solution is a VPN, but like you say, VPN usually means having to install a client. Yes. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, during most nap punching, you have you'd have to spoof the from IP address, though, right? I wonder. That's what I was just going to ask you, because uh, mm -hmm. I, I was reading Daring's uh, uh, comment in the chat room. I'm yeah, wondering if I'm just uh, not sure how you would punch the NAT as a third party and how that would be at all secure if you could. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what that's what it sounds like. Well, I guess you, you could probably just get both sides to try to connect to each other, and they might open the thing. But the session ID, like the sequence number of the TCP things, wouldn't match up. What about just doing something like SSH tunneling or something like that? Could he just just accomplish some of this with just doing something? Well, again, like, uh, SSH tunnel will require the client on yes, the yeah, machine and yeah. and the machine to tunnel through. Yeah. 
like a DigitalOcean droplet. But yeah, for a lot of things, uh, this a five dollar DO droplet is amazing for this type of thing. Yeah, and if if you do know, leave us a comment. How does yeah. Plex make that connection? And how? I mean, it's a, it's. I know it's a direct stream from Angela Server when I play that episode of Batman, but nothing is revealed in the URLs to how that's actually happening. Yeah. The player handles all behind Nats. Uh, how do you yeah. get out? Yeah, and yes, we could mention Tink as well as JB Live eighty nine. What eighty two well, is just another out. kind of VPN. Right? <clears throat> yes. All right. Isn't Tink more like Tor? So uh, it's more like a stuff? mesh VPN. So each one that has a client, you all of a sudden are like on this virtual subnet, this virtual LAN. I guess is my understanding. I've never used it, but uh, so Gary writes in, and he's got a question that's pretty cool about remote tracking of log files. He says, "My ten year old son and I share an interest in going deep in learning Linux and FreeBSD." We, ha- we are at the beginning of a long journey, but so far we've experimented with lots and have enjoyed setting up all kinds of environments on old and new laptops on DigitalOcean, too. We started exploring the system logs on Ubuntu, and the logs are great. It's clear learning more about them will give my son and I a great confidence in how we administer our systems. Boy, you know, just today, I that is such a good point. Just today, I was installing and changing my login manager on my system upstairs, and uh, I had this crazy font set up, and it totally caused it to bork. And I realized, I think a key thing before you ever go in and make any changes on your system is learn to read the log files first. So that way, when it borks, you can go read that log file and quickly fix it. Uh, so boy, you are right on the you are on the right track here, Gary. Says I'm looking for advice on generic log framework capable of extracting systems log from a local Linux box to a cloud or mobile phone, so we can one remotely track the logs, two learn more about the logs, so we can understand them and take them. Uh, in the back of hand, and three, be able to set triggers and notifications according to log state. Someone at my work suggests I look into Splunk, but the free tier does not appear to be secure enough for my taste. And I would like to manage the receiving server of my logs directly on a droplet. Any suggestions? Thanks for the show, Gary Z. That was the problem I have when I looked at Splunk as well. Although, if you set it up to run in like localhost and then put your own Nginx in front of it to proxy and provide you know, authentication, then it's less bad. But... Uh, uh, in the show notes, Chris has added a bunch of stuff about uh, Logstash or ELK, which is uh, elect, uh, Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. Kibana. Uh, which we've talked a little bit about uh, how to do it on BSD as well. There's a tutorial on BSD now. Oh, uh, cool. Not a tutorial, but a link in one of the show notes. Uh, and uh, I happen to know a friend of mine, Dan Langell, who runs BSDCAN, has been doing a lot of work with this lately. This uh, is a heck of a job. series up on DigitalOcean. In fact, I linked to mm-hmm. two things, uh, the introduction and the beginning of the series, and then like a huge roundup of stuff that Dio has posted on Kibana and using on a VM or using Logstash and using Search. So this could be a great start. Yeah, and there's lots of nice dashboards that give you pretty graphs and, and stuff you can look at on your phone and yes. alerts <laughs> and all that stuff. All the things. Uh, and it's uh, not a bad skill set to learn anyways. Mm-hmm. So. There you go, Gary. Let us know how it goes. Kevin writes in about free NAS and a DMZ. He says, hey, I've got a free NAS box set up with one NIC and two tagged VLANs. VLAN 1 is for internal use, file storage, etc. And VLAN 2 is going to be for a DMZ where I will put jails on the free NAS server for own cloud and subsonic, etc. Now, you might want to look into a replacement for subsonic. Right now, everything seems to work in that everything can talk to everything else and traffic is getting tagged properly. Now I'm ready to lock down the DMZ, preventing routing between the VLANs on the FreeNAS box and keep my DMZ jails from accessing anything but the bare minimum. From what I can tell, this should be done with PF on the FreeNAS host. Is this correct? My, CS, my PFSense box would decide what internet traffic goes to the FreeNAS on VLAN 2, and the FreeNAS PF keeps that traffic from everything but the appropriate jails. Thanks, guys. Kevin. Yeah, so normally you'd be able to do everything on the PFSense. 
except for in this case, your jails, because they're running on the FreeNAS, which has access to both VLANs, the private one and the public one, or DMZ, sure. um, means that on the jail, you could normally reach into, or from inside the jail, you could normally reach into the private VLAN that you don't want to allow them. Uh, it depends how the networking is set up on the jails as well. If you're using what's called a vImage, where the jails actually have their own complete networking stack and you can have their own firewall and so on, which I think is the default on FreeNAS, uh, then they're bridged to an interface and you could make it only bridge to the VLAN 2 and not, uh, hmm. then it wouldn't be able to access anything hmm. in VLAN 1. Um, and then you wouldn't need a firewall because to get from VLAN 2 to VLAN 1, it would have to go through the PFSense, which would deny it. Um, but if you just have the regular type of jails, then yes, uh, you could use firewall rules on the FreeNAS to do it. Uh, real quick, uh, real time. I don't know follow-up. how easy it is to um, set up the firewall on FreeNAS because it's really stripped down. I don't know. I was say, wondering like, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure there's probably some googling that could quickly reveal the answer to that. That's probably not the first time somebody's thought yeah. of that one. Just a real-time follow-up to Gary's question about log monitoring. Um, Inagogo in the chat room points out that on last, we've also featured in the past Logio, log.io, which is something a little simpler, Gary, and probably not your speed, but it is a real-time log monitor in your web browser for your different servers. And it's actually kind of a neat setup. Uh, it is a, a dirty Node.js app, but uh, if you can get past that, it's pretty simple to get going and... Uh, Kind of really fancy looking, but uh, probably not what you're looking for. But others out there that want something a little simpler and maybe have a smaller setup, you can check out log.io. Uh, mm-hmm. Logio.org is where you find that, or check the uh, last page. Really? They did log.io's the app name and didn't buy the domain and made it logio.org? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, all That's right. It's kind so- of pushing the whole point of .io into the garbage can, but anyway. Um, real quick feedback, uh, follow-up, just uh, like a news story, briefly important for people to know, we do have an emergency flash update. Dun, dun, dun. We need a jingle, but I know we can't have jingles, but if there ever was a need for a jingle, a flash update jingle would be it. <laughs> dun, yeah. dun, dun. So there was a zero-day being exploited in the wild, so make sure you're on 21.0.0.242 or newer. For all of the OSs. That, that, well, get it. All right, there you go. So, so yeah, I, the version number for Linux is weird. It's like 11.2.something.640 yeah, something. I don't even know about it. I just use Chrome if I'm going to use Flash. That's where like I keep Flash contained to is Chrome. Just leave it in there. Yeah. Uh, if you want to send us a question, feedback, follow-up, anything like that, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop-down. That seems to be the popular way. Or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love your questions. It's one of our favorite part of the show, but we need more of them. So if you've got one that's been noodling around in there, go ahead and send it into us and uh, we'd be happy to answer to it. Or maybe a project that you've been thinking about and need some clarification. Those are always fun too to see right when somebody's thinking about something and help them get them started in the right direction. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some more links to follow up on your own and read on your own after the show. And some of these links were powered by our incredible subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first one, I thought for sure Alan was going to bring to the Roundup this week because producer Q5Sys submitted it to a few of our different subreddits. So I thought it might be on your radar, but this one, it's 
I just don't even know what to make of this. The FBI will be able to obtain a warrant starting in December if you have Tor installed on your computer and they know it. Uh, right. So, so they have to know it first. I would guess they would notice Tor traffic or something. Uh, but uh, if Congress fails to act, there's been a rule change that as a result, the FBI will be able to legally search computers running Tor remotely, even if they have no idea where the machine is located or what it's being used for. Simply having Tor installed on a computer would be reason enough for the FBI to investigate that user to combat cybercrime. So this is, if you have Tor installed, the FBI has the right to hack into your computer and look around on it. Yep. Without even finding out where it physically is. Seems like a bad precedent. Sure. Um, how are they planning to actually do that is another thing, too. But Yeah, yeah. Well, the, Probably uh, why they were trying to harass that Tor developer. <laughs> you remember that last yes. week? Yes. I had not made that connection. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Like, yeah, so that, you know, that, that, what's that Tor browser bundle? We kind of need to get some software in there to uh-huh. Uh-huh. be able to snoop. Speaking of getting software in there, you found a good one. Yeah. This is what so, All Winner, which is a company that makes mobile devices and lots of stuff, um, they ship an SDK for people to build their own ARM-based devices. All right, right? They, they make the chip uh, for stuff, not sure. Raspberry Pi, but a lot of similar type things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they provide an SDK for other people to build their own device out of it. Uh, and it turns out in their SDK, the custom kernel they ship has a root back door that they, I don't know, apparently forgot to turn off or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they posted it up on GitHub, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's the oh, Linux they're kernel. taking it they down now. Source it and, uh, oh, yeah. uh, it's a Linux kernel. They had to open source it, and they left their back door in and forgot, I guess. <laughs> uh, and it's used in many devices. Apparently, the Orange Pi, Banana Pi, QB Truck, PC Duino. Uh, Isn't it amazing, Alan, how many of these manufacturers, A, apparently develop these things with backdoors, and B, apparently accidentally leave them enabled in the most obvious and sort of dumbass ways? Like, it's, and it's it's not one, it's not two vendors, it's like a solid dozen now. All of them. (laughs) It's just unbelievable. And and I I mean, I understand, uh, I just, I guess, I guess I don't accept the answer that debug is the reason that they need backdoor root access. So, so this one is especially bad. Basically, if you echo root my device to slash proc slash sunzy underscore debug slash sunzy underscore debug. No. The... Privileges of that process no. uh, are immediately no. super rude. No, you know. all the effective UIDs to zero. No, you not no. You, you, you echo. What, what do you echo? What, what, you echo what? Root by device. You see the string right there in the picture? No, no, I can't accept that. That is too hilarious. That is so great. Oh, my gosh. That is. And, and when you do, it literally prints out, now you are root. <laughs> that is a it's good like, one. Can't, can't you install sudo? Like that is that is that is great. I mean, it's right there on the screen, and I still can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, how do they get go through code review? It's like, well, the Linux kernel is kind of big, and this is yeah. probably just stuck in a corner somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, that's that is true. That part's true, but yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so I don't, I don't. If you have, if you have a, the stock OS for a lot of those devices, you probably want to look into the updates. Uh, I'm starting to think maybe I should use the blockchain for all kinds of things. At least that's what these schools are thinking. Uh, this is something interesting. They're using the blockchain, uh, which you know, for Bitcoin, to store school information. Uh, it's Halliburton School of Software Engineering in San Francisco is one of them. They announced so plans it, to... Yeah, I can see where this would be useful. Basically, with the blockchain, uh, once you write information and you build other blocks on top of it, 
that information can never be changed because it would actually fork the blockchain and go somewhere else. So especially being a software development school, they probably have lots of students trying to screw with their grades. So by using a blockchain, as soon as uh, any other student has a grade after you, your grade is basically immutable without rewriting the grades of every person after you. The other thing they said, uh, which is interesting just to, from the complete other end, is for hiring uh, employers, they say, it avoids the time of having to contact different universities and go through third parties, which I guess there's like an industry where, where employers go to, and then those people go and contact schools and get information, and the, the future employers could just check the blockchain themselves. Huh? Proof of concept, I'm sure here. I mean, this is really super early days, but it's interesting to think of the blockchain and Bitcoin outside of the uses for Bitcoin, and then that's yeah. really pretty fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, they say the blockchain also means the school saves money from building and operating its own database. <laughs> there you go. I suppose that's true too. Yeah, let's make the blockchain really huge. Atomic, yeah, uh, yeah. operations. Is, yeah, the blockchain is very happy to lose information. Is an important thing to remember. So. Uh, yeah, that's true. Speaking yeah, of crypto, uh, Alan. In, in general, I would say that's an interesting idea. Yeah, maybe uh, we can start distribu distributing our, our uh, episodes that way. People would have to run it through a, 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 a parser, but I mean... Well, yeah, more importantly, blockchain, you'd have to watch previous episodes before you could watch next episode. <laughs> <laughs> we should something. try it. Somebody's going to do it one day. Mark my words. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on. Speaking of bad crypto... Yes. Uh, so the, the developers who wrote the Open Smart Grid... Uh, Made up their own crypto, oh. which is never a smart idea. Uh, yeah, so they, they came up with like their own hashing algorithm instead of doing like, you know, HMAC SHA-256 or something. That's standard. Uh, and so it turns out it's really easy to break. What? In the story, there's, there's a link to just how to brute force it. And not only that, but use it to get back the private key and be able to own everything. <sighs> Jeez. Jeez. Whoops. So this one's, uh, this one's no good. This is the plague of a Windows box at a hospital. Uh, a medical equipment crashed during your heart procedure. And it's actually no joke. Like, there was a small five-minute window they had during the surgery that this thing had to get back online. Uh, it's two main modules in this machine. One is, like, the actual medical device, which is, like, serious and, it's, you know, connected to catheters and all that kind of stuff. The other component is a software package that runs on the doctor's computer or tablet and takes recorded data and logs it to display on screen via, like, charts and stuff like that to make it easy for him to read. Yeah, so it takes in data over serial port and makes graphs. Yeah. Now, of course, things are going along. They're actually in the middle of a heart surgery, and the machine locks up. After investigation, it reveals that the machine was configured to scan for viruses every hour, and it started the scan right in the middle of the procedure. Uh, then the antivirus froze. Access to crucial data required by the application... And when it was unable to access real-time data, it crashed in a spectacular way, and it took the thing down. Yeah. And so there you go. That's an old yeah. good story. It's like, well, the documentation for the software from the vendors says you should whitelist it from your virus scanner. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, file locking, that's a, that can be a thing. Um, all right. So tell me about this one from Vox, 40 maps that explain the internet. Oh, I think I'm going to yes. like this one. So as you start scrolling there, you see the first one is the very first... Internet, which mm -hmm. had like four computers on it. Yeah, it's adorable. And then by the 1970s, it's like, oh, we can go to the East Coast too. Look at that. Yeah, there's ARPANET expands in 1970, and then in 1973 we go international. Look at that to London. Yes, and the first Ho time we go to London, Hawaii, and that other country, Hawaii, out there. Uh, yeah. yeah, ARPANET goes international in 1973, and then 1982 the community grows. Look at that. Get, get more stuff online, and then 84. Then the ARPANET becomes the internet. Yeah, you know, that's a big one. 
Yeah. My room's a little faster. There's 40 of these. That's when, uh, that's also uh, when TCP went live. So I'll jump ahead yep. a little bit. So 92. Uh, whoa. Look at that. Holy crap. When you go to, geez, when you start getting network. to the 90s, this stuff gets yep. crazy. Then you get privatization. And there's some anime grasses people get on the internet. And then as people get broadband. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Then they had that one there. It shows the TLDs, where they come from. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, then there's the map of the underwater fi- uh, fiber optic yep. cables. There's fiber optic cables. That's really only covering the Atlantic. It misses most of the Pacific. Yep, yep. Uh, countries where the internet could easily be taken offline. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Syria. Uh, how, yeah, how Syria dropped offline. It shows the cables there. Censorship uh, around the world. Yeah. It's like we didn't even test Canada. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this just shows where in California most technology companies are. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Look at uh, yeah, YouTube all the way up there. They missed a bunch of... Uh, companies that should have been on the list as well but anyway yeah i agree uh, and then we have uh google the browser wars as you see yeah. everybody switching for internet explorer the, the birth uh, of facebook and the growth yeah. of facebook like crazy Seeing, uh, which social networks win in which countries uh a map of where major google microsoft yahoo and facebook data centers are is interesting yep data yep. centers in the u.s in general huh uh broadband, broadband. penetration by state isps uh, most popular isp you can see uh and which two are merging? Time Warner and Cox, is it? Something yeah, I like don't remember. I mean, that happens so much now, I can't keep it straight. Well, because the, the Comcast one got can't, uh, blocked, and so yeah. somebody else bought that yep. Yep. other one instead. Yep. You know. uh, then they show Google Fiber and where it's available and where they're planning to go to. Then uh, which fiber. places have municipal fiber, which states have made municipal fiber illegal. Uh, look at Washington right there, a bunch of jerks. Yep. Uh, then they have... Um, Comparing the number of people that tweet about twerking versus the number of people that tweet about Syria. Wow. And show that most of the country, they tweet more about twerking, but in the South, they tweet four or ten times more about twerking than about Syria. <laughs> so twerking is always more popular, but in certain states, um, twerking is many, many, many times more popular <laughs> than Syria. Hell, Yeah. Yeah. Don't even ask about uh, T-Swivel. Uh, all right, so there's and then here's a cool one. You can see uh, the uh, watching the uh, people be awake and asleep via Twitter activity. Yeah. Porn consumption yeah. by state. Oh, good to see Washington's in the darker green, which means uh, one of the higher consumptions. Yes. Although uh, Utah, damn Utah, and uh, like Dakotas. Mr. Yeah, Miller man, to step it up. Yep, yep, and then of course Wikipedia is in here and languages of the world, at least according yeah. to Twitter. Yeah, so uh, Wikipedia, the the different colors signify how much it knows. In different languages, so you can see in certain places different colors, yeah. and then yeah, the languages the, the languages one is interesting. I wonder if their data is partly skewed, uh, but we see that you know the Netherlands is very much everybody speaks Dutch. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is pretty. Or, neat. I mean, it's just more concentrated. This must have taken a lot of work. Well, I think a lot of the, you can tell that a lot of them were done by separate people, and they just yeah. kind of aggregated them all together. Yeah. But yeah, still pretty cool. Link in the <laughs> show notes. This one is really making the rounds today, so I thought I'd just toss in the roundup. Uh, it's it's sort of a visual one, so I'll paint the picture for you. There is sort of a white generic looking SUV with a generic Google Maps sticker stuck like in the that, window. That literally looks like somebody printed that on an inkjet printer and stuck it in the window. Yeah, this isn't a Google Street View car. It's a government spy truck. They looked into it and uh, by finding like uh, registration information on the dash and whatnot, 
and uh, contacted Google. Google confirmed this was not them. It's an SUV, well, it's an SUV tucked away in the shadows of the Philadelphia Convention Center's tunnel, uh, which has a, the ubiquitous Google Maps logo mounted. Also on the top of the vehicle are two high-powered license plate reader cameras. Uh, and it looks yeah, like to a patch of the average Google passerby. Has, uh, like this big ball thing, right? The Google cars look very yeah, yeah. particular. And they have yeah. uh, and that's nothing like what they look like. That is like such a bad job of it's like, like that logo, that's not the Google Maps logo. That's just something somebody did and printed on the, an The interesting and thing stuck is in the window. They tried to get to the bottom of who is doing this, and all they can really confirm is that that car is registered to the local city. Uh, and that they confirm it's not a Google Maps car, but they cannot confirm what they're doing with it there, with the license plate readers and whatnot. Kind of weird. Obviously, license plate reader. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about hackonomics. The cost of getting caught. That's adorable. It's at least a yeah, good headline. So it's interestingly, uh, when you price stuff on the internet underground, like exploit kits and stolen credit cards, uh, it's not so much how much they're worth; it's how high the risk is of you getting caught. Sure, that makes sense. Basically, for less risky things, they're willing to accept less money, and for more risky things, they want more money. Uh, so they they did have a study. The Rand Corporation, which does you know consulting reports and so on, did one uh, and kind of just showing what kind of considerations go into it. That makes sense yeah, for to the me. Last story, if you look in the chat room, somebody linked. Uh, yeah, Rikai just linked what the actual Street View car looks like. Which there's no way that the. Uh, the uh, government was going to put that much money into a whole body wrap. Uh, that yeah. that looks well, in like particular, this seems like it's the city doing it. This looks like, a, or it's the it's a government agency that's just using a local resource. Uh, that looks like it's sure, got lidar on it. It's got three hundred sixty degree camera on that thing. It's got a yeah. serious well, mount. In order to take the actual Google Maps photos, they need three sixty degree camera. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Pretty cool. Or actually a bunch of separate cameras that they stitched together to make 360, but same thing. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. All right. So uh, this is an interesting story about how they found a uh, – the folks over at Cystic, I guess, mm-hmm. found a bug in the Amazon ELB, which is, is the Elastic, the elastic load, ba- yep, load Balancer. So tell me about yeah. this. What do we know? It's a cool story about how they found a bug. There you go. That's pretty much what we know. That's why it's in the roundup. Yeah. Uh, I didn't yeah. have time to read the whole thing. That's yeah. why I went in the roundup. There it's, you go. They got graphs and charts and – Always a good story about finding a bug in one of those giants. It's funny. This is the one roundup story this week that we both had that I didn't put in because you got it before I did. Uh, guess what? Pornhub, Pornhub is getting in the bug bounty program, everybody. I got a bug bounty and uh, varying reward amounts, like what, from like 50 uh, bucks all the way up to 25K? Up to 25K, yeah. Uh, in particular, you know, the idea is that, uh, you know, a good way to hack a whole bunch of people's computers is to be able to inject something into Pornhub. Uh, and so they don't want to be the people that give you a virus. Sure, that makes sense. What I found now, to be sort of more interesting about this uh, is not that they're doing this, but the fact that they're doing it through this Hacker One site, which seems to be like a bug bounty of hacker bounties. So it's yeah. like a wider community. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, so they're launching yeah, on that. like uh, Yahoo, Twitter, Adobe, GM, yeah. Square, Uber, New Relic, Slack, Dropbox, GitHub, etc. Yeah, uh, as 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 they say. So that's mm-hmm. kind of neat. That's kind of and now they could add Pornhub to that uh, list down there of yeah. uh, companies. Uh, the other thing people found <laughs> interesting is the list of things that are and are not allowed. Oh yeah. Uh, strictly prohibited is obviously denial of service attacks because that's not proving anything. Okay. Uh, physical attacks against Pornhub's offices or data centers. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, social engineering of our service desk employees or contractors. Uh, compromise of a Pornhub user or employee's account 
or automated tools to scan uh, botnets, compromised sites, end-user clients, or other means of large automated exploitation, or use of a tool that generates a significant volume of traffic. Okay. So please don't take our website down trying to win a bounty. Seems That seems fair enough, too. Okay. Additionally, they will not accept uh, cross-site request forgery, uh, cross-domain leakage, information disclosure, hmm. uh, cross-site scripting attacks via post requests, uh, missing SPF or DMARC records for okay. mailing, sure. uh, HTTP-only or secure cookie flags, missing HSTS or other HTTPS-related things, session timeouts, missing the X-frame or X-content headers and something, click-jacking, rate-limiting, or being able to download a video. They're not worried about that stuff. They're worried about, you know, compromise their database. Or In other things. words, everybody go out there and de- build a Pornhub or whatever it was, dot .com uh, video downloader. Ah, there probably already is one. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they have cool. uh, lots. Good for them. Of, and uh, because it's HackerOne, they also have a list here of the people they've paid. You know what? I think it's really nice that they do that. I'm really, I say good for, I, all porn sites should do that. Because who wants to get crap uh, looking when they're, you know what I'm saying? Nope, that's just a bad well, time. In, in particular, you know. Uh, HackerOne seems like a good way for lots of yeah. places to get in on the bug bounty things to improve the security of their site without having to manage the entire uh, infrastructure of running a bug bounty program. It would be a lot of work. Uh, in particular, HackerOne Hacker takes care of the payments and everything. You know, So you don't get paid by Pornhub. You get paid by HackerOne, which also probably looks a little bit better on your resume or something than saying you got paid by Pornhub. Um, Jaram says YouTube DL already does the job. So <laughs> this next story really kind of upsets me. Uh, da- I guess David Levin was arrested for dis- disclosing a SQL injection vulnerability that he found. I mean, he found it and then, of course, exploited it in finding it, but then disclosed it to the company and, and ends up getting arrested. Am I, am I tracking well, in particular, this? The, the point is this is the electronic voting system in Florida. Which seems and- like pretty important that people know has an issue. Yes. Well, the people who run the thing disagree. <laughs> didn't. <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's pretty disgusting. Uh, he's released on a hundred, or I'm sorry, a fifteen thousand dollar bond. Yeah. yeah. They say he but used a special software of program to obtain illegal access to the Lee County State Elections website, and while he had access, he obtained several usernames and passwords for employees in the elections office. We're told. Uh, he then went to a step further and used the Lee County supervisor username and password to gain access to other password-protected areas. All this was done without him seeking permission. Well, of, well, it, it, <laughs> wow, wow. The arrogance. These people, you know, when it's, it, this kind of attitude is going to lead them to getting election data just completely owned. Yep. Uh, you know, it's better he reported it so that, uh, you know, I don't know if we could do blanket amnesty just because you report a vulnerability after you exploit it. Yeah, I follow you on that. And, you know, there are limits to what you should be doing without having permission and so on, but yeah, you know. Yeah. Calling it specialized software when he did an SQL injection is, you know, make it sound like he was using some illegal program. It's like there's no such thing as an illegal program. Alan warned you it was coming. We got a story about SAP. This one is target uh, attackers were targeting a critical flaw since 2013. Yes. So uh, they've been attacking different businesses since 2013, but it's still ongoing. Uh, SAP mitigated the flaw, which definitely sounds like they didn't fix it. They just made it harder to exploit. Uh, but obviously not everybody's updated apparently. And, uh, it's some Java applet thing and, and you can basically get access to applications with no authentication at all by hitting a a secret URL basically. Hmm. So if you, if you can guess the URL, you can just run the application and do whatever you want. 
So this one's been getting a lot of attention this week. Twitter uh, has been blocking the feds from mining their service. And I guess... So yeah, Google bought a company that yep. mined Twitter and... Or sorry, Dino. Twitter bought the company that was mining Twitter. Data and miner. Yeah. As a, a service and they sell this to people. Correct. And uh, they have also... But the, the government was also having access and they're like, no, we don't want that anymore. And you can still like you can still go to Twitter and pay for like access to the full Twitter feed, which I guess is... Yes. Supposed uh, to- and they've just decided to cut the government off. Seems like the government will just pay one of the other people that has access, or yeah, you know, probably make some <laughs> company that buy access. Yeah, uh, you know, if if you if you're familiar with Operation Orchestra, which is a uh, talk from Fosdem two years ago, I think uh, that uh, FreeBSD developer Paul Henningkamp gave, where he outlined what the NSA should be doing or what they could be doing uh, that would be better than what they're doing now, uh, and that's the kind of things is like, you know. If we need to wiretap Skype, well, we just get Microsoft to buy it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the, we, need uh, to, we need to get a bug in some open source software, we just pay a developer to do it. The uh, article points out that the CIA spokesperson, uh, Dean Boyd, declined to comment directly on the agency's access to the data miner service, but said that the value of open source information has never been greater. I hate that they're calling anything posted on the web as open source information. Well, yep, open it, source intelligence. Uh in that particular case, that definition of open source is old. Is it? As old as open source, yes. Oh, okay. It just means, right. it just means as opposed to secrets. It's yeah, just they any, took something like, in the public. Yeah, well, like open source intelligence can be like, I don't, are you familiar with the like Jane's series of books? No. They're basically like textbooks about airplanes and boats. Okay. Like, So like if you get like Jane's fighters, it's all like information about like every yeah. airplane ever. So if you... Uh, and if you so if you oh we know that the F fourteen can fly this fast because it was in this book that's open source intelligence. See, it just feels so cheap calling things that people tweet open source intelligence. Yes. It just it's, it's, it uh, just means it's not a secret. And yes, uh, it conflicts with the definition of open source we use in our everyday lives. But mm-hmm. for them, that's it. Just means the source. That of makes me feel better. That makes open. that does make me feel better. Yeah. Uh, okay, so tell me about this email mishap that leaks Google staff data. Uh oh. Yes. So Google outsources the management of their like health benefits, employee benefits stuff to a company. Sure. Uh, well, this company apparently somebody there accidentally emailed a big file full of sensitive data like social security numbers to the manager at the wrong company. So not Google. Man, that's got to be. First totally all, encrypted. I'm sure they had a. I'm sure they were using GPG encryption for the emails. So I'm sure everything was totally encrypted and fine. Luckily, the person who received it at the other company was like, "This isn't for us." Whoops, and deleted it and told Google and the company about it. Oh, okay. So what's this thing about a, a PDF that's viewable? Like, what's this? Uh, what oh, is this? This PDF is Google's announcement that went out to its employees. Uh, and they okay. They have to give that to the state of California. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Yes. They didn't post a PDF of everybody's social security numbers online. Now, here's the new trend, Alan. This is the new security advice going around. Don't change your password. Don't change your password. Well, not quite. But it's something, you know, we've been telling people for a long time. Uh, if you work at a place where they have one of these policies where you have to change your password every 30 days yeah, and you yeah. can't use any of your last 12 passwords, yeah. people tend to just increment the number at the end of the password. Yeah, they get lazy. They get terrible. Well, having a much longer secure password that you just stick with is probably better. Okay. Yeah. You still need to change it when it's gets breached or whatever, but uh, basically forcing you to change your password every so many days usually results in people using worse passwords. Yeah. Duck battery staple, is that what it is? Duck battery horse staple? It just gives it like it's a long sentence. 
Horse bat. Yeah. Okay. Put a duck in there too. Why not? <laughs> add, a, add a duck. Add a duck and a number. Uh, okay. What's this about U.S. Congress banning uh, members using Yahoo Mail? No more personal Yahoo Mail accounts, I guess. Uh, well, in particular, they're getting ransomware attacks, and somehow they think blocking Gmail, Yahoo Mail, and Google oh, okay, Apps so, is going to help. Oh, so Gmail's on the list too, huh? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, well, Google App Spot, which is basically a thing that we. Uh, when you're using Google's compute engine, or actually the AppSpot is the version before we only uploaded your app and you didn't get access to the operating system. Yeah. But basically, you could upload an app and it would run it and it's free. Um, some people that worked in the, at the Congress there actually wrote some cool apps for the Congress people to use, uh, and those are now blocked as well. Uh, but because there was one one ransomware actually used something on Google AppSpot, uh, they've blocked it all. Hmm. Uh, seems like that's really not going to help. That's sort of like the uh, the full. You know, if, if the threat vector is people getting phishing via Yahoo Mail or Gmail, I doubt that you know them using Outlook is going to provide any more protection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and the Google App Spot is like, well, one bad thing. You know, if you report it to Google, I'm sure Google will take it down. That's what they do. You know, it seems like the U.S. government and the representatives in it are having a real hard time these days with email. A lot of them are just having a hard time with email. It's just well, a difficult so thing for them. Lots of people are having trouble with ransomware. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That is getting more and more, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I blame Bitcoin. That's what I was just. I blame that uh, Craig Wright guy. That's who I blame for. for I, don't, I don't know. All right, Alan. I think that just about brings us to the end of this week's show, doesn't it? That's it. Okay, well, guess what? Before we go, I just got a little bit of details for you. We'd love to have you join us live over at jblive.tv. We do this show live Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is. 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 GTC. Boom. Also, you can catch us over at uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, and it'll just convert it to your local time zone, so you don't have to worry about that. Also, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact for feedback, and techsnap.reddit.com for topics that might just wind up in our roundup and RSS feeds, so you can get this show every single week are linked over on the show notes, where links to everything we talked about are also posted. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>